Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Hendrik Meyer about his biography of the 20th century American politician and statesman Arthur Vandenberg, entitled Arthur Vandenberg, The Man in the Middle of the American Century. Hank, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. It's good to be with you. Uh, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, I am a currently involved in our family retail business in based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we have, we have retail stores, uh, I guess we call them super centers, uh, akin to the Walmart variety. Although we like to think that ours, ours are, uh, have a, um, distinctively higher standard, but the, I'm executive chairman of this family business, but in my earlier life, I was a reporter and editor in the newspaper business. And, um, Went to the University of Michigan, where I was an English major, and then did graduate work in history at Western Michigan University, and had written a biography of my grandfather, who 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 was a, a, a sort of a radical political immigrant turned barber turned entrepreneur who opened a grocery store in the Great Depression, and after that, really fell in love with the biography form and wanted to tackle another subject and one that was um that I had always been curious about as a as a uh, as a student of history and a um an observer of international relations was the story of a senator from Michigan from my hometown of Grand Rapids named Arthur Vandenberg. What was it about Vandenberg in particular that drew your attention? My elevator speech would be that he's the most important politician or public figure of the 20th century in the United States for whom there was no biography. And I realize that's a that could be uh, an ambitious statement, but Arthur Vandenberg, who uh, began his life also in the newspaper business as a reporter and then editor in Grand Rapids, became a United States senator in 1928 when, as on the advent of Herbert Hoover's election as president, and built his early career in the Senate, among other things, as an outspoken isolationist, as an opponent of of American intervention before World War One, before World War Two, in World War Two, and then after the war, found himself as perhaps the most influential American delegate at the creation of the United Nations in San Francisco in 1945, instrumental in writing the UN Charter, and then engineered the passage of the Marshall Plan, which General Marshall always said could have been called the Vandenberg Plan through Congress in 1948, and then wrote the Vandenberg Resolution, which enabled the United States participation in the creation of NATO. And so he moved from being an isolationist who felt very strongly and really took as his mantra 
Hamilton's words in Washington's farewell address about avoiding entangling alliances went from there to being an advocate for America's role as a global leader and its responsibility to be engaged in the world to of necessity become involved in entangling alliances. And that that transformation, I think, mirrored a recognition more broadly among the American people that our place in the world had changed and our responsibilities had changed. In that respect, it seems that it might be more accurate to say that uh, to have as a subtitle, the man who personifies the American evolution in, in that how he seems to undergo it within himself the shift that the United States takes over the course of the first uh, half of the 20th century from this position of, you know, you know, detachment from global affairs to this position of being at the center of it. I think that's absolutely true. And he was of that generation coming out of World War One, when he, like so many others, had been inspired in part, even though he was a lifelong Republican, by Woodrow Wilson's notion of a crusade to make the world safe for democracy, to justify and motivate American involvement in World War One, And when that crusade ended in the the bitter fruits of Versailles and the seeds of future future conflict, future war, he was one of those people who who took that to heart and said, we've learned a lesson here. We're not going to get burned again. And that's how so many Americans, not only those coming back from the war, but so many others felt at that time. And you're right. I think he's a reflection. In fact, one of one of his Senate colleagues in the 19 in the later 1940s, uh, had a quote that I always loved. He said, Van changes his mind about as often as the average American, but slightly earlier. In other words, <laughs> he, he, like you said, he reflected and mirrored those changes, but because he was coming to that awakening a little sooner than the electorate, he wasn't way out in front with no followers. Um, and I wouldn't claim that he was a visionary, but he was, his thoughts were evolving just ahead of the broader social changes. And so he was able to both reflect that and bring public opinion along with him, sort of like the converted uh, sinner who becomes a saint because um, people say, well, if, if Arthur Vandenberg could make that change, I guess I can too. I wonder if you could take us back to his early years and explain uh, to our listeners, how he you know, basically how he started out, and and how he uh, entered uh, the the field of of public service of 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 public affairs, and 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 the, the the views that he developed during that period of time. Sure, he was he was born in 1884, and his father was a harness maker in Grand Rapids, who had, who had emigrated west as so many to, to what I think of as the near frontier, as so many people did in those days in the, in the mid to later 19th century, following the Erie Canal across uh, New York State. He was from, his family was from upstate New York, uh, coming to Michigan at the, at the height of the lumber boom. And uh, his father, Aaron's Van, uh, Aaron Vandenberg's harness-making business prospered but then was nearly wiped out in 
the the biggest economic debacle in America to date at that time, the, the panic of 1893. This was during the administration of Grover Cleveland. So the uh, the Democrats bore the bore bore blame in a lot of people's eyes, or Cleveland did, and and uh, Vandenberg Sr. as as most Northerners of that age, or so many were, was a Republican. And so, as as a young man, Arthur Vandenberg, when he went when he was nine years old, he started a little delivery business between a local shoe factory and the and the railroad station. Um, pulling a handcart and then finding other boys who could do that too, contributing to the family's income when his father's business was, was largely ruined. And so he was going to work and he was imbued with uh, a Republican fervor. His, his grandfather had been a delegate to the Republican convention that nominated Abraham Lincoln from, from New York state. And so he, and for him, the, the celebration of the Grand Army of the Republic with their parades every year in a town like Grand Rapids was a, was a highlight of the year. So he was, a, he was a politically conscious young man, a hardworking young man. He graduated from the, the local central high school and got a job in a, in a biscuit factory. And this was in 1900, in the summer of 1900. Well, in September of 1900, the the great inspirational leader of that age came through town on a campaign swing. This was Teddy Roosevelt campaigning as a vice presidential candidate with William McKinley. And Arthur Vandenberg was determined to, to attend the parade for uh, the hero of San Juan Hill when he came to town. And when he got back to the biscuit factory, young Arthur was fired. And so after that, he found a job with the local... Republican newspaper, the Grand Rapids Herald, and uh, and he had edited his high school paper, so he had already had some exposure to to journalism and quickly established himself as the most productive stringer at the newspaper. Spent one, in fact, his first byline was on the the Electoral College. He claimed that he started reading the Congressional Record when he was fourteen. We we have no evidence of this, but certainly a passion for politics took hold early on. And then spent a year at the University of Michigan, ran out of money, came back, went to work for the Herald again. The Herald was owned by Republican Senator William Alden Smith, whose chief claim to fame was uh, conducting the hearings into the sinking of the Titanic. But uh, Smith was had no newspaper background himself. And when his editor died very suddenly, Vandenberg, at the age of 22, as the the staff's most productive reporter was named editor and then edited that newspaper later the later added the title of publisher for the next 20 years and what's interesting in that era was how important newspapers were i mean obviously they were the primary sources of information in a community and and most were partisan and vandenberg ambitious to establish himself as he's writing virtually all the paper's editorials, I think he said he was writing 80% of them, uh, is sending those editorials to Republican leaders around the country. And so when we're, after he's, we've gone off to war with World War II and, and Wilson comes back from 
Versailles with the League of Nations Covenant, Vandenberg is actually influencing from his editor's desk in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the debate over the League of Nations. He sends an editorial to Henry Cabot Lodge, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, who's, who is fighting Wilson over the League, uh, approving the League Covenant. And Lodge writes him back and says, um, I don't know if you were the first to propose reservations, but I, but I think you're on the right track. And in fact, I'm going to use your phrase, unshared idealism is a menace. And so here's Vandenberg influencing, uh, in contact with Henry Cabot Lodge Sr., influencing the debate over the League of Nations, and then um, being talked about as a potential candidate for, for public office uh, throughout the 1920s. And then in 1928, with the death of an incumbent Democrat, a fellow named Woodbridge Ferris, um, the Republican governor who Vandenberg had been instrumental in electing, um, appoints him to the United States Senate. One of the advantages of that background, as you uh, illustrate in the book, is that we get to see how he forms his political views and the positions he takes on various issues even before he formally assumes a public office. I was wondering if you could explain a bit his political ideology and how that gives us a bit of insight into uh, the kind of senator that he was. Because it was interesting, as I read the book, I had a certain image in my mind of Vandenberg that comes from the Vandenberg, the isolationists of the 1930s, the internationalists of the 1940s. And yet you describe a, a, a far more uh, complicated character than that simple binary idea of an isolationist who becomes internationalist over the course of his time in the Senate. I think that's right. He would, of course, deny, well, he, he acknowledged both those labels at various times, but always with a little hesitation. What he would rather, of course, have said was that he was a nationalist all along. It's just that the the role of the nation changed. But he uh, he grew up as a hero worshiper, and his hero was Alexander Hamilton. In fact, in the 1920s, he wrote three books tied to Hamilton. And the first one was called The Greatest American, and its its pretext was that he, he wanted to make the argument that that Hamilton was the most neglected of the founding fathers and was indeed the greatest American who had had the greatest impact on the on the formation of the new republic. And in doing so, he solicits opinions of other leaders around the country and around the world about who they think is the greatest American. And, and he has Winston Churchill writing in and, and young Franklin Roosevelt. And the, 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 the survey is pretty evenly split between Washington and Lincoln as the greatest American. But then, of course, he spends part of the book arguing for Hamilton. But Hamilton was sort of the first or one of the first Republicans in the sense of at that time the, the um, he was building up the the economic strength of the country through high tariffs. He was warning against um, foreign alliances. He, that was Vandenberg's hero. And in fact, um, not so much to do with ideology, but also a little bit of insight. Vandenberg's writing this book during the Harding administration. And he talks about, even though he wrote speeches for Warren Harding, wrote, wrote Harding's 
foreign policy address on um, the League of Nations, in fact, he was also almost overtly acknowledging, I think he, at one point he talks about an age of second-class men, and therefore he wants to talk about the model of the greatest American. And that, that colored his thinking all the way through. So even as, even as he may have coined the term normalcy, uh, with the return to normalcy slogan of, of Warren Harding. He, he told one reporter when he was asking about that, yeah, I think it's something I might have said. Um, he was also tacitly acknowledging that this small-time Ohio publisher uh, really was not what the United States was looking for. Um, but he came out of that strong Republican heritage. In fact, when his father died, he said um, his, his deathbed words are said to be, son, promise me you'll always be a Republican. And uh, actually, that was also in 1912 when um, when the Bull Moose Party had split apart from the Republicans. And, and even as Vandenberg worshipped Teddy Roosevelt, he liked the institutional stability of the Republican Party and what it stood for and was, was a little bit leery of, of populist appeals. You mentioned briefly how he became a United States Center by appointment. But as you explain in the book, it was a little bit more complicated than just that an incumbent senator died and uh, and Vandenberg was chosen. I was wondering if you could explain a bit uh, that process of appointment, because it really, I thought, provided a nice uh, window into how politics worked in, in Michigan at the time. It, it really does. It was, a, it was a rather precious moment. So the 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 governor of Michigan earlier in the 1920s had been a former attorney general named Grossbeck from, from the Detroit area. And, and, and Michigan had traditionally had, uh, had a, a rivalry between Detroit and, and what's called outstate Michigan. And often, in fact, their senators, who until very recently, of course, at that time had been appointed by the legislature, um, they often struck a balance between those two. Well, Vandenberg didn't like the somewhat more liberal Detroit-oriented Grossbeck and his machine. And so he was one of the chief um, advocates for the election of a small-town mayor uh, from, from Western Michigan named Fred Green as governor in uh, the mid-1920s. And Vandenberg had not managed Green cam Green's campaign, but he had been one of his most vocal and earliest boosters and so when the incumbent Democrat dies, Vandenberg has, and, and Vandenberg had planned this, he died in the spring of 28, Vandenberg, who had been resisting other urges to run for political office, really had always dreamed of the Senate. This guy wanted to go to Washington. He didn't want to, he didn't want to start small. And so uh, he had been, and, and Ferris was an elderly Democrat. He was well-respected, but I think he was 76 years old. And, and in frail health before he died. So there was a question of whether he would run for reelection. So Vandenberg is beginning to organize uh, early in 1928 to run for office, to run for the office that fall when the incumbent suddenly dies. And Vandenberg figures, okay, my guy's in the governor's seat. I'm going to be appointed. Well, that may have happened otherwise, but there were two well-respected former Republican governors who, when it became a matter of, gee, we don't have to run for re-election, for election, we run for office, we can be appointed, 
threw their hats in the ring too. And so Governor Green was really in a quandary. He didn't, he had two big party leaders who suddenly wanted that job along with Vandenberg. And while he might have supported Vandenberg in the fall, he thought, you know, I don't want to choose between these guys. And so first he announces that he's going to, to appoint a retiring congressman just as a placeholder, and then Vandenberg can run in the fall, and therefore uh, Green doesn't have to alienate the, the former governors. And then uh, and Vandenberg is, is summoned to Lansing, he thinks, to be told that he's going to get the appointment only to be told that the, the governor is not in, but his his chief of staff or his chief aide informs Vandenberg of this plan to in, to appoint a placeholder uh, so he can run in the fall. And Vandenberg is fuming and feels betrayed, storms out, comes back to Grand Rapids. Um, the there's a there then and the the. A day or two later, he gives a speech in another small town or a bit of scheduled speech, and the, the local editor there um, gets a call from one of the Detroit papers that says, you know, we heard or we saw Vandenberg, um, we, we heard that Vandenberg is going to be appointed to the Senate. And Vandenberg said, no, no, I was told that I, I wasn't going to. No, no, we think you are. Vandenberg, the, and and at the same time, the, Detroit News reporter, and the Detroit News was the dominant Republican newspaper in the state, uh, very influential. The Detroit News reporter um, observes Vandenberg going into the the governor's office for this meeting when he is told he's not going to be appointed immediately. And they prepare a headline that says uh, Vandenberg being appointed to the Senate. They think they've got a scoop. That's why he's he's been summoned to Lansing. And so um, Vandenberg is furious at being denied it, um, but in the meantime, the the motorcycle policeman who's been sent to Saginaw, Michigan, to notify this retiring congressman that he's going to be appointed is tracked down, pulled back before he can do that, and the and Vandenberg is receives a letter at his office that is. Um, he has that's in green ink, which is what Governor Green used, and he assumes it's confirmation that he's not going to be appointed because he's been told by his chief aide that that's the case. Throws it away when the newspaper, when one of the newspapers calls, it, no, no, you are going to be appointed. He, he, the story is that he goes down to the to the press room at the Grand Rapids Herald, and he and his his employees are are fishing through the trash trying to find this envelope, and sure sure enough, it says he's been appointed. And what turned out was the the editor of the of the Detroit News later says that he then tracked down Governor Green, who was sort of in hiding at a hunting cabin in northern Michigan, and said, "You can double cross Arthur Vandenberg, but you can't double cross the Detroit News because they were they had the headline out there that you know would now be proved wrong, and they'd be embarrassed." And so Green apparently reluctantly appoints Vandenberg and issues this statement of, of marvelous equivocation when with on Vandenberg's appointment that said um, that um, he's a good Republican and um, and the newspapers the newspapers all agree or something like that 
and Vandenberg and Green don't even speak for like six months. There's an American Legion convention or something that they're both at in Detroit, and people notice that neither one is applauding or making eye contact with the other. And then about uh, after Vandenberg goes to Washington um, and Green is there for a meeting, uh, Vandenberg's wife reports in the diary several months later that they had a good chat and they're now back on speaking terms. But it was a very fraught, dicey appointment. and. It was really the power of the press uh, that projected Vandenberg into the Senate for the first time. There's this longstanding idea that when you go to the Senate that you, it, or you enter Congress generally that you or should be seen and not heard, you should learn the ropes. Was this advice that Vandenberg took when he first entered the Senate? Well, it was the standard advice at that time. And of course, as, as you know, social media and other things have changed that so much that I don't think that gets the, that, that, that sense of waiting your turn no longer is as strong as it was. It was very strong then. But in Vandenberg's case, he was appointed in the spring and he had to run for reelection in the fall. So he felt like he would, and, and he was, he was the local newspaper editor. He was influential in party politics, but he wasn't a household name in the state. So he felt the need to establish himself very, very quickly. And so he wasted no time. And as a, as a, as an ambitious student of government, he had all kinds of ideas. And so um, he very quickly set about um, trying to do things, saving and saving an army air force base, uh, army air base uh, near Detroit and, um, other other sort of constituent services. And he also had uh, just a, a wonderful challenge because Michigan at that time was in the early stages of the auto boom and its population had soared. It was one of the fastest growing states in the country. And it, the last census that had applied was in 1920. And in, in all the prosperity of the 20s, that's when Michigan had really boomed. And so um, Michigan and a number of other states, particularly California, had more con needed, had more, uh, had earned more congressional seats. And, um, and Vandenberg was wanting to, and facing resistance, particularly from Southerners who would, who would, who would lose seats in that census to champion um, a reapportionment that would gain the state congressional seat. So he did a lot of things to try to, to try to win recognition very quickly. Came across as a, as a rather um, brash young character who was chided by, the, uh, by his colleagues, but he also was setting out, and, and this became a lifelong uh, mark of his uh, personality, but also part of his political achievement, he saw the need for compromise. And he came in just as Herbert Hoover was being elected in the fall of 1928. And Hoover, who was um, an engineering genius, and in many ways, an administrative genius, had no political background. He'd never run for public office before. And he comes into a Senate dominated by Republicans, but the Republicans are split down the middle between the, the old guard, as they styled themselves, who tended to be the more conservative Eastern Republicans, and the, 
and the the, the Mavericks, from, who were often Western progressives, such as uh, William Bora in Idaho, and those two camps often didn't get along. And and Vandenberg is trying to ingratiate himself with the new president and also have a foot in both of those camps to bring them together to support the president's agenda. He's also elected to the United States Senate on the eve of the Great Depression. And you have this massive economic uh, downturn that really uh, upends American politics, uh, changes the lives of, of millions of people. I was wondering if you could explain how he responded to this event and, and, and what this response reveals about him as a senator and as a politician. He was, as a freshman senator from Michigan, the before, so, so, the, so Hoover is elected in the fall of 28, the stock market crashes in the fall of 29, and the country is plunging into uh, its, its worst economic depression ever. And Hoover really doesn't have the, the, the Hoover is hoping we'll, it will be a, a short term thing. And, um, and, and of course, so is Vandenberg, so do Vandenberg and all the Republicans, but the, in Michigan, the, there were bank holding companies, as there were in many places in the com- country, that had been interlocking institutions. And the, there were two bank holding companies in, the Detroit, in Detroit that were on the verge of insolvency in late in 1931 and, excuse me, late in 1932 and early in 1933. So Hoover, Hoover of course, loses the election to... Franklin Roosevelt, who who brings a sense of of optimism and activism that that Hoover could not project, and the uh, and in Hoover's waning days, the federal bank examiners are coming in and saying, "We've got to, well the bank, Detroit bank executives are coming in and saying we we're on the verge of collapse," and that banking crisis in Michigan could trigger a nationwide banking crisis. And so Vandenberg is in the middle of trying to get a, the, a new reconstruction finance corporation that, that had been created in the Hoover administration to, to come to the aid of the Detroit banks. It involves convincing Henry, Henry Ford, who's the largest stockholder in one of them, to put in more capital. And he's feuding with his former colleague, James Cousins, who's Michigan senior senator, who is also very wealthy and Hoover wants him to put in more capital and Vandenberg's in the middle of this, but Vandenberg recognizes in the middle of this crisis that what he believes needs to be done to stabilize the banking system is a system of deposit insurance. You know, that's a program that had been advocated from time to time over the years by many people, including Vandenberg editorially, but Hoover and his secretary of the treasury, uh, Andrew Mellon had resisted it. And then, and Roosevelt was, didn't want to involve himself in this banking crisis. He was going to let that be on Hoover's plate. And then when he came in, he declared a bank holiday, but Vandenberg kept pushing this deposit insurance idea. Roosevelt, like Hoover resisted it. He 
um, I think he and many people felt that if if you had strong banks, in a sense, paying into a fund to bail out failing banks by insuring their deposits, that it would be pulling down the strong banks with the weak ones, and the weak ones, and, and that was that was bad policy. Vandenberg felt, and a growing body of opinion in Congress came to support him that the to restore confidence in the banking system as a whole, people needed to have comfort that their deposits would be insured. And so Roosevelt fought it, threatened to veto it. Even his vice president, John Nance Garner, however, was in favor of it as were. And, and so Vandenberg put together a coalition and, and it was and was able to attach um, an amendment for federal deposit insurance to the uh, Glass-Steagall Banking Act. And Roosevelt very reluctantly signed it, had threatened to knock it out, but but reluctantly signed it. And then when it came time to renew it, um, claimed it as one of the foremost achievements of the early New Deal. And uh, Vandenberg always sort of, <laughs> Vandenberg resented Roosevelt taking credit for it, but was grateful that Roosevelt, once it came in, uh, vigorously endorsed it. And so uh, that was his response to the Great Depression. I find it's a it's a great uh, encapsulation of, of Vandenberg as a senator, even though he's Republican at a time when Democrats uh, come to dominate the Senate, he is nonetheless able to influence events and get measures through. And we see that not just with his role in uh, passing deposit insurance, but we also see it with a lot of the foreign policy debates that take place in the Senate in the middle 1930s. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon his role there, because it's really there that you start to see him assuming a much more prominent role uh, in the Senate when it comes to the question of foreign policy. That's right. He had been, he had been um, suspicious. I mean, we, we talked about the, the, the widespread disillusionment with Versailles and with the, with the treaty and, and the, um, post-war uh, policies of, of the Europeans and, and the question of whether, how did America get pulled into this war? And Vandenberg each for, had started to introduce a bill each year that never got any traction to investigate the causes of World War I and of American involvement in the war. And the in the mid-1930s, actually coming from what we would today think coming from the left, but coming from a, um, there, there, there was a woman named Dorothy Detzer from the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom. And, and the, the, the peace movement, so to speak, was also wondering, you know, how do we get into this war? How, if we understand that, maybe we can avoid future ones. And um, Vandenberg and a senator from North Dakota, Gerald Nye, uh, came together through Dorothy Detzer and through through others in Congress to pool both the Vandenberg was coming more from an American Legion standpoint and say, you know, was it was it the arms manufacturers and the the financiers who got us into this war, uh, and uh, and Nye is coming more from a. Uh, almost a semi-pacifist angle of 
of how do we avoid future wars. But together, they the and, and the committee is called the Nye Committee, but Vandenberg is is a big driver of that. Uh, together, they're trying to ex- understand the origins of the war, and they're calling the Duponts to testify, and they're and 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 Wall Street bankers and. They're looking into the causes of the war and that they come away from that experience convinced. And here's Vandenberg drawing on Hamilton again, convinced that the role for the United States in a, in a world that is becoming increasingly dangerous, because now in the 1930s, you have Hitler and Mussolini and the Japanese war cabinet all coming to power and beginning to assert themselves in in different conflicts, whether it's um Hitler marching into the Rhineland and or or uh, Mussolini attacking Ethiopia or the Japanese invading Manchuria the world is becoming a more dangerous place and Vandenberg's response to that and in his role leading the Nye committee is to call for very strict American neutrality and that neutrality debate further identifies him in in the public mind and and pushes him into a role as as a leading isolationist. Now his his Senate mentor William Bora had been an isolationist for decades in the Senate and 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 Van, and he and Vandenberg and Nye are all in sync fighting Franklin Roosevelt's early attempts to quarantine the aggressors to begin to have some foreign policy tools that can potentially aid threatened democracies, France and Great Britain, and potentially sanction the aggressors in some parts of the world or potential aggressors in Europe in, in, uh, by being less neutral. And so that, that neutrality debate really um, pulls Vandenberg and elevates him in the, in the public mind and in his own mind as, as a leading isolationist. You describe how he's becoming this incredi- increasingly visible figure in the U.S. Senate when it comes to foreign policy and, and, and also on some other matters. And this, as he's doing this, the, the 1940 presidential election approaches. And, and you have this very interesting discussion in the book about his role in that election, because by 1940, he's been in the Senate for over a decade. He is a, a very prominent Republican, and that means uh, that, that means something a, a bit more at this time, because so many Republicans have been wiped out in the 1930s. There are very few prominent Republicans left. Did Was he ever seriously considering becoming president? Uh, was there ever a serious effort to, to to give him the Republican nomination? What exactly happened uh, with that in 1940? Well, if we, we we jump back a little bit to 1936, when that the in the 1934 midterm election, Vandenberg was the only Senate only Republican senator from a major state to be reelected. In fact. Um, and one of the very few governors to win re-election was Alf Landon in Kansas. And so Landon wins the nomination. Vandenberg, in, so 1936 comes along, and, and Vandenberg is, is starting to be mentioned now as a dark horse simply because there are so few Republicans, something like 17, left in the Senate after 1934. And so all you, you sort of automatically elevated because there aren't too many others still standing. And and you've been 
been reelected when most of most everybody else has been uh, washed away in a, a democratic t- tide. And so uh, Vandenberg is starting to get mentioned then in 36 as a dark horse. Uh, Landon really wants him as his vice president. And Vandenberg is resisting that with every bone in his body. He would love the idea of being president, but he doesn't, doesn't see any attraction in this. And then um, um, somebody congratulated him on, on, on avoiding being, you know, riding in the backseat of a hearse because, of course, Landon was crushed. And so Vandenberg, uh, and in fact, uh, Landon's running mate was Vandenberg's good friend, Frank Knox, who was then the editor of the Chicago Sun-Times, I believe, but had started out his newspaper career also at the Grand Rapids Herald and had been city editor when Grand Rap- when Vandenberg was a reporter and had been one of those rough riders with Teddy Roosevelt in that campaign parade in 1900. So they went way back. Um, but anyway, so Landon and Knox were, were um, famously carried uh, – what was it, Maine and Maine and Vermont? Um, so then, 1940 is coming up, and Vandenberg is is now one of the the, the the leaders in the Senate. There are so few Republicans; one of the Republican leaders, and uh, has great, gained increasing visibility through these neutrality debates, and so really is viewed as a as a pretty serious contender. Still thought of as a dark horse because the guy does not want to aggressively organize and campaign for it. He's very coy. He always he, he loves the, his ego loves the idea that maybe I'll be drafted, which really doesn't happen. Um, but he he's mentioned as a as a contender. He and in 1939 is leading some some polls as a prospective candidate and and particularly among among editors and and elite opinion, shall we say, is is seen as one of the Republican front runners. But then in 1939, war breaks out in Europe, and suddenly that isolationist position looks a lot shakier than it did before, because Americans are facing some pretty tough choices when when Western Europe is being over beginning to be overrun i mean there's this this phony war until early until 1940 when 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 hitler is is pushing into poland but hasn't made any big moves in western europe but but in any case the the isolationist position is looking a little shaky and somebody who's an absolute isolationist maybe is a little too pure to cope with what might be coming and at that time the the republican candidates are Vanden potential candidates, Vandenberg, a young senator named Robert Taft, uh, with a famous name and and um, clearly bright and capable, but also very conservative and isolationist, and an untested young um, one prosecutorial wonder from New York named uh, Thomas Dewey, who's made a name for himself busting gangsters, but has no international relations or foreign policy credibility. And along comes this suddenly new, newly minted Republican and darling of the media named Wendell Wilkie. And Wilkie's 
much more flexible on foreign policy and says, you know, we've got some allies here, demo- fellow democracies who may be under threat. And, uh, and he adopts a line much more akin to Franklin Roosevelt's and the, these sort of establishment conservatives uh, don't gain traction. Vandenberg allows his name to be in, entered into the Wisconsin primary, but um, is out-organized by Dewey. And this is early in the primary system, so primaries don't, don't, uh, don't count for that many delegates, but are an early indication of public opinion. And Vandenberg finishes a distant second in the Wisconsin primary right across the lake from Michigan and really doesn't see any uh, future for himself in the 1940 campaign and doesn't pursue it after that. So, but he nonetheless, the after the election, he's still a very prominent voice in terms of foreign policy. And then uh, a little more than a year later, you have uh, Pearl Harbor and America's entry into the war. How does the war affect Vandenberg's perceptions? And when does he begin to uh, reconsider his isolationism? And, and most importantly, what impact does that have on American foreign policy? The just just prior to Pearl Harbor, but after the 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 expansion of the war in Europe in 1940 and early 1941, you have Roosevelt seeking tools to come to the aid of the Allies and, of course, most particularly Great Britain. And Vandenberg is resisting uh, resisting expansion of selective service. He's resisting the or, or um, he's resisting the uh, lend-lease aid, selling those destroyers or trading those destroyers to Great Britain, and uh, then Pearl Harbor happens and. There is that natural, uh, we've been attacked, we need to fight, we're all on the same side now, spirit through the country, and Vandenberg is certainly a part of that. But it also, uh, Pearl Harbor also suggests that the the oceans as moats that the isolationists have carried around in their imagination for a generation uh, no longer can safeguard us, that, that modern warfare is changing. And so post Pearl Harbor, Vandenberg, Pearl Harbor is not only a wake-up call. He said it ended isolationism um, for all of us. Uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but but it certainly was a piece of that. And then there are other pieces that are sort of interesting. Um, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, contrary to what some people might assume, is not named for Arthur Vandenberg. It's named for his nephew, uh, Army Air Force General Hoyt Vandenberg, who was the an early secretary of the Air Force, uh, an early director of the CIA, but with Pearl Harbor had been in had been in London during the German Blitz. With uh, had was a student of modern warfare of of modern air wars. He's talking with Uncle Arthur, stopping by his apartment in in Washington on a Sunday afternoon, and excusing himself and going into the kitchen while the rest of the family's in the living room and talking about strategy. And, and, and he's an ad, he's a, he's one of the early people recognizing that isolationism from a, from a military standpoint is no longer tenable. Um, you've got 
we 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 mentioned it as a as a sort of sort of um, scandalous aside because it's it's fun to talk about even though I think the influence was minimal. But Vandenberg was also having an affair with the wife of a member of the British Embassy staff in Washington, um, who some people, and I say this in terms of knowledgeable reporters, say was she was not only his neighbor in their lived they lived one floor up from the Vandenbergs in their apartment hotel in Washington, but was also planted by British intelligence to keep an eye on what the isolationists with Vandenberg as their leader, Bora had died, by the way, in 1940, and Vandenberg then became the un, the undisputed leader of, of the isolationist opinion in the Senate. Uh, but I don't think she had, I think she may have been a wonderful informant, but I don't think she was a big influence. But then the bigger thing that happens for Vandenberg is in 1943, so the Wilkie runs, he's defeated by Roosevelt, but well, he hasn't got deep roots in the party and, and the party establishment resents him as a sort of interloper. He does reflect a significant body of opinion that said this old isolationism has been shown to be an insufficient response to the realities of, of the modern world and of the modern war. And so now the Republicans in 1943 uh, the tide is beginning to turn in the war. The Allies are beginning to push back against the Germans and the Japanese, and the and the Republicans are looking ahead to 1944, where Wilkie is the titular head of the party, and again um, might have every expect, expectation of challenging Roosevelt uh, for in 1944. And the Republican National Committee chairman says. You know, we're going to be split right down the middle if, if you know, we're isolationists and we're internationalist Wilkieites and we can't come together on a on a foreign policy platform. So he calls a meeting on Mackinac Island in, in northern Michigan and charges Vandenberg, who's on the Foreign Relations Committee and the chief Republican spokesperson at that point on, on uh, foreign policy, to chair a group to come up with a platform for the Republicans can run on in 1944 that won't tear the party apart. And Vandenberg goes in there as a sort of widely viewed in the public as an isolationist. But this is at a time when um, people are beginning to think about what the world is going to look like after World War II. Because now it looks like the Allies, it, it may take Nobody knows how many years, but the Allies are going to win this. We can't make the same mistakes we made after World War One. There has to be some way to to achieve a lasting peace. And Roosevelt has already coined the term United Nations, referring to the Allies. And there is a widespread sense that the United States can't walk away from an international consensus after the war as we did after World War One. Uh, but what's that, what is that going to look like? Roosevelt is, does not want to make any commitments because he's got two allies, the Russians, who he's counting on, and he can't alienate with some plan for some group of democratic nations that will threaten them, and the British, who have this enormous colonial empire, many much of it now occupied by Japan, much of it clamoring for independence. Um, 
and the British want to hold on to some of that empire after the war. So Churchill certainly does. So Roosevelt is just saying, you know, I'm Dr. Win the War. Don't sort of don't let's not be talking about what the world's like after the war, even as public sentiment is beginning to wonder. And as people are beginning to introduce bills in the legislature, you know, proposals to, to, for post-war policy. Vandenberg at Mackinac Island gets the isolationists and the Wilkieites to agree on an expression that after the war, the United States will participate in an international organization as long as it doesn't infringe on our sovereignty, because you've got Wilkie writing about one world and people talking about world federalism and global police forces and things. But the Republicans do some, approve something called the Mackinac Charter that calls for American participation in a post-war organization. And lo and behold, it's a namby-pamby document, but nobody else has done that yet. And Vandenberg has put it together. So all of a sudden, he comes away from that conference no longer being viewed as this hardcore isolationist, instead being viewed as someone who has crafted a first public response, and it happens to be Republican, to the need for a post-war organization with the United, that becomes the United Nations with the United, with the United States participating. And the press, of course, loves that. And Vandenberg now is, is getting a lot of encouragement from that standpoint. So even though in the public mind, he's still an isolationist, he's moved considerably away from his days on the Nye committee saying, you know, we're not going to have anything to do with, with what happens in Europe. He really is in a position of enormous influence, isn't he? Because he, in some ways, has inherited this potential mantle of Henry Cabot Lodge. He could have been an obstructionist. He could have been leading the charge against all the you know treaties and so forth that would have been uh, uh, that were that you know would eventually be introduced in the Senate after the war. And yet he ha so he has that cachet of being the person who is reluctant, and yet. Because of his uh, of his uh, conversion, if you will, or reconsideration, that he now has this enormous authority to say that you know I, with my doubts, am, am ready to embrace this role under certain circumstances. And in in that sense, he has a, a, he, he becomes this indispensable person to the political element of defining America's post war role. That's so true. The And I think cachet is a good word. So Roosevelt, too, Franklin Roosevelt, he and Vandenberg may be bitter adversaries in some respects, but he, too, recognizes that one of the things that went wrong with the League of Nations debate was that Wilson led that delegation to Versailles, of Amer the American delegation to the League of Nations conference, was uh, he did not... Wilson did not appoint a single prominent Republican. He didn't, he didn't invite Henry Cabot Lodge. He didn't invite other uh, party elders. And so when he comes back from Paris with this League of Nations covenant, um, he presents it to the Republicans, said, we're not going to make any changes. And, you know, they've had no say in it. And so it, it, it bred great resentment. And so Roosevelt, well, first of all, um, 
to back up a little bit, so as, as the war is now nearing its end, we'll jump to 1945, Roosevelt is being, is, is being inaugurated for his fourth term. He's in frailer health than anybody realizes, but, Van, um, but he also is about to embark for Yalta, and where the earlier summits between uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin had been, there had been some talk about what would happen after the war, but, but the dominant questions were of, of you know, when will the United States open a second front with a Normandy invasion? What, what, what are our strategies during the war? Now in 1945, in, in early 1945, the war is on its way to being over, and the, the summit at Yalta is going to be preoccupied with what's going to happen after the war. And so on January 10th, 1945, but, but where, the, where people like Vandenberg are, have spent their, their, much of their political life suspicious of what Roosevelt plans. And Roosevelt, of course, really functioned as his own secretary of state. If he had a delicate mission to Churchill or Stalin, he didn't send his secretary of state. He sent Harry Hopkins out of the White House. Uh, Cordell Hull was often in the dark about what Roosevelt was doing, as were members of Congress. State Department couldn't keep them informed because State Department didn't always know what was going on. And so Roosevelt had played things so close to the vest that when, when, where Churchill and Stalin seemed to have a pretty clear agenda, partisans like Vandenberg didn't know what Roosevelt's was. And so Vandenberg, Vandenberg stands up in the Senate on January 10th, 1945, and gives a speech proposing a post-war alliance of the victorious allies to ensure that Germany and Japan will never again be military threats, and essentially a security agreement that says we're going to we're going to make sure that that Germany no longer, as it has now twice in the last thirty years, uh, can can threaten the peace of the world. This is this is the isolationist calling for an entangling alliance, and that uh, that is is sort of Vandenberg's breakout moment as uh, saying isolationism is no longer our, the, in America's best interest. That Roosevelt is, when he departs for, Alta, for Yalta uh, a few days later, requests 50 copies of that speech. Now, whether that was for window dressing or not, I don't know. But Ro Ro Roosevelt, coming back from Yalta, recognizes that this United Nations that they're starting to create and that they've set uh, scheduled to start later in the spring, a conference in San Francisco, that he cannot avoid appointing Vandenberg to the United States delegation. And that's a, um, I think it's a, let's see, um, it's a six member delegation and he has to have Vandenberg. And in fact, um, Vandenberg's appointment is, is he, to do exactly what you said, you know, to avoid that situation of Vandenberg becoming a Henry Cabot Lodge and having that, uh, having a United Nations charter presented to the Senate with automatic Republican suspicion and hostility. So he appoints Vandenberg, 
And then, and in fact, Vandenberg meets with him and says, listen, I'm not going unless I can be an independent actor. I'm not, I'm not going to tow your line necessarily because we don't know what your line is. And in fact, Roosevelt pops some things on the, on the delegation like, oh, yeah, uh, we gave Stalin three delegates. You know, we gave him an extra one for Ukraine and white Russia. And he says, we can have three also, but um, if, if you want. And so the delegates are suspicious right from the start. And Vandenberg says to has a, has a meeting with Roosevelt just before Roosevelt departs for Warm Springs and says, hey, uh, I can break a leg if you want to, because I'm going as an independent actor. And, and, and if you are worried about me dissenting or if I draw too much flack for what I say about Soviet intentions or something, you know, I'll back out right now. And Vandenberg claims, and, and, and there's one, uh, one observer who said, who, who corroborates this, that, that Roosevelt says to him, you know, uh, actually, I, you, I, Roosevelt, too, coming back from Yalta, is, is increasingly wary of what, commit, of what Stalin's intentions are. And this is centered around Poland. And, and is he ever going to allow free elections? And what's going to happen? And Roosevelt says to, to, to Vandenberg, you know, uh, if there's one person that I need on this committee, it's you. And that's both for the reasons of Senate passage and for the reasons of, of sort of proper wariness about Soviet intentions, then Roosevelt dies. Harry Truman has had lunch with Roosevelt once in the brief time that, that he's been vice president, really no, he's, he's a student of the Senate, but he's not no experience in foreign policy at all. Uh, the new secretary of state, a fellow named Edward Statinius is a competent manager of the state department but has not had, he's, he's been to Yalta, but he doesn't have any sort of high level uh, stature in, in foreign policy. So Vandenberg, in essence, arrives at that conference to organize the United Nations in San Francisco as the most influential American delegate. And it's, he's leaning over Statinius's shoulder, telling him how to reply to what the Soviet foreign minister Molotov says when, when he says niet to something. Um, and so that really is, is the beginning of Vandenberg's significant role in shaping post, post-war policy. It, it, what were some of the other ways in which he shaped foreign policy over the rest of the decade? Because he was, it was interesting to see how he didn't just play this role of being this informal representative, but as you described, he, he's playing a role in, in a lot of area, other areas as well. He's in terms of public opinion, in terms of his role in the United States Senate, especially after the uh, Republicans uh, retake control of the Senate in 1946. He, he, he seems to be almost everywhere when it comes to American foreign policy in the late 1940s. Well, in, yes, in, in 19... So in, in he, he, and, he and his Senate his Democratic counterpart, Tom Connolly, a senator from Texas, who they, they traded the foreign relations chairmanship, depending on which party was in power, uh, they had been delegates to the United Nations. When they come back from the UN, of course, Harry Truman is, Harry Truman's a friend of theirs. Uh, and and after, after all of Roosevelt's time in office, when Roosevelt really treated the, the Senate as a, as a nuisance, uh, and and for, had big majorities, so he didn't need to cultivate any sort of much bipartisan uh, support. That Truman um, 
in a sense, coming back and recognizing that he needs the Senate in ways that Roosevelt didn't, and he understands it. And he asks Connolly and Vandenberg to join Secretary of State, new Secretary of State James Burns, who, of course, many people thought should have been vice president and then president rather than Truman, and Truman may have been among them, um, in Paris for the post-war peace conferences with all of the defeated, the countries who were allies with Germany, with post-war conference with Italy and Romania and and, uh, Hungary. And so Vandenberg with Connolly spends almost all of 1946 when he's actually up for re-election in Paris at peace conferences. I should say in the, in the fall of 45, he's, he's um, also attending the first UN general assembly in London. So he spent something like 200 days abroad. He came back to, uh, and, and it was sort of unprecedented diplomatic activity for someone in the United States Senate. And in fact, he's, he goes to that first UN General Assembly, and this is before there was a, an American ambassador to the UN. The, the, at that time, we had a delegation, and he was on the delegation with Connolly and with Statinius and with Eleanor Roosevelt. They were the, they were the American delegation. And uh, it was funny because uh, he and Eleanor Roosevelt had had a very difficult relationship. He, of course, viewed her as the 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 liberal on Rose on Franklin's shoulder, you know, pushing him even further away from from Vandenberg's uh, conservatism, uh, and he had been she had resented his attacks on her husband. He resented her what he viewed as her socialist schemes. One of them was to create a a, a, a planned community in Appalachia whose cottage industry would be furniture. And of course, Vandenberg was the senator from the furniture city of Grand Rapids, and he couldn't see federal dollars going to, to into competition. Um, and so he and, he, and, he and Eleanor had this difficult relationship, and then, but they sailed to, to uh, London together for the first UN General Assembly. And, and after that, he, he wrote to one of his friends, he said, you know, I take back everything I ever said about her, and it's been plenty. And she, in turn, uh, begged him to stay on involved with the UN. Uh, but he said, you know, I got to get back to the Senate. This is, I, I've, I've got a, I've kind of got a day job here and I, I can't do both. And so they ended up with mutual respect where they had been, been adversaries for so long, but he, he, he's involved in this up close foreign policy negotiations for all of 1946 He's he's getting to know Molotov and Vizhinsky, the the the, um, the Russians, um, and this is this is the Cold War breaking out. I mean, they're staring down each other over peace settlements, over whether there's going to be free commerce on the Danube, and and what's going to happen in Yugoslavia, and is Trieste going to be a part of Italy? Um, these big contentious issues. Vandenberg's in the middle of the negotiations, and then in 1947. You have uh, the Republicans have taken control of the Senate. He is chairing the Foreign Relations Committee. And General Marshall makes a speech at Harvard calling for significant American aid to help in the reconstruction of Europe. And Vandenberg blanches at first. He's got enormous respect for General Marshall, but blanches at first at the the kind of dollars being involved, but recognizes that chairing foreign relations, this is, this is his baby to work on. 
He commissions a big study from the Brookings Institution to see if we put billions of dollars of aid into Europe, uh, what will its effect on the American economy be? He, um, he negotiates with Marshall and the State Department to make it the to to pare back some of the request to make it big enough to be what they expect to be effective, but digestible enough to be sold to the Congress and the American people who really are you know just they're just done with the war they've just had rationing they may have been spared destruction but they really don't want to. Um, they're just trying to get their economy back on a sound footing. And now we were going to do this massive foreign aid program, which of course, coincidentally is going to end up benefiting the American economy because we need those trading partners, but it's still a tough sell to the American people. And so uh, Marshall who Marshall and Vandenberg worked this out. And, and in fact, um, Marshall has a wonderful quote where he said, you know, Truman was smart enough to call it the Marshall plan because if it were called the Truman Plan, it would be partisan and a problem where Marshall had, the new, then the new Secretary of State had such universal respect that his name would be a better sell. And then Marshall turned around and said, you know, it could have been called the Vandenberg Plan because when we got to the Senate, Van was just the whole show. And so Vandenberg was, was strongly identified with that. And then even as the European economies are beginning to recover, the Cold War is intensifying, and you've, you've got the, the lone, and, and Americans want to bring their troops home. The Western European militaries are destroyed or decimated, and the Red Army is the most powerful military force on the European continent. And in Poland, they are not allowing free elections and doing some of the things that Stalin promised. And you've got an Iron Curtain descending, as both Vandenberg and Churchill have, have related. In, in, uh, Vandenberg gave the earlier speech, but, Rosa, but Churchill's got all the attention. Uh, and so the, the, the Europeans are saying, you know, we think we see our economies beginning to come back, but we don't have any security here. And so they approach the United States and say, you know, we need your help. And that's when Vandenberg writes the Vandenberg Resolution, which enables the United States to enter into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization with the Western European countries. And that, of course, is the next significant. That, that's the Vandenberg had a proposed an entangling alliance. Now, this was an actual entangling alliance. And so you've got this, you've got the UN and then the Marshall Plan and then NATO, really the three most important elements of American post-war policy. And, and Vandenberg is central to all three of those. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I'm still looking for direction on that, Mark. <laughs> Um, the, 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 we, we, the question is, do you do something that is as, as, as if I had David McCullough's talents and aspirations, you would say, I'd like to learn something about something new. So I'll move to a whole different topic and do Lewis Cass because he's the, um, he played a role in the, in the, um, from, from the organization of the Northwest Territory to the Trail of Tears to 
trying to avoid a confrontation at Fort Sumter um, that has gone unrecognized in American history? Or do you look at someone like uh, William Fulbright, who was an early, was a Democrat, but an admirer of Vandenberg, who had to wrestle with some of the consequences of America's new global leadership that resulted in the Vietnam War. Um, I don't know. I'm open to your suggestion. It's fun to think about, though. Well, I am sure that whatever you eventually decide on, it's going to be a great book. Hank, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Mark, it's a real pleasure. Thank you.